Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Episode 91 of District of Conservation. This is your host, Gabriella Hoffman. Today's guest is Jonathan Wood of the Pacific Legal Foundation. Jonathan is a senior attorney at the Pacific Legal Foundation's DC Center, where he litigates environmental, property rights, and constitutional cases. He is passionate about finding constitutional, effective, and fair solutions to environmental problems. He believes that private property rights are our greatest tool for improving the environment, and through PFL, he fights to defend those rights every day. He stumbled into this interest in property rights and free market environmentalism while pursuing a master's degree at the London School of Economics. He spent his time in college at the University of Texas at Austin thinking he would be an academic economist, but in grad school, he studied Namibia's free market environmental reforms and learned how important, clear, and secure property rights are to protecting everything from water quality to endangered species. Jonathan's burgeoning interest in libertarian environmentalism led him to the NY School of Law, home to several leading libertarian law scholars and a premier environmental law program. During law school, he worked for the Cato Institute, a federal judge, and PFL. Since joining the PFL team after law school, Jonathan's work has focused on defending and promoting property rights' role in protecting the environment and fighting government actions that trample liberty without any benefit to the environment, especially over criminalization and constitutional violations. In addition to his work for PFL, Jonathan is an adjunct fellow with the Property and Environment Research Center. We featured Hannah Downey from Perk recently. Great guest. Awesome work she does. A member of the executive board for the Federalist Society's Environmental Law and Property Rights Practice Group and publishes Freecology, a blog on libertarian environmentalism. Jonathan and I covered a wide swath of issues in the course of our about 30-minute long discussion if you want to learn about environmental law, how certain interests, especially preservationist interests, abuse environmental law, how they try to disincentivize private property rights advocates and landowners from partaking in these critical environmental discussions, Jonathan is going to clear that for you and make it simple. He's going to translate some legalese terms for you all as well. And I figured he would be the perfect person to talk about this subject. I have followed his musings for several years. I'm pretty familiar with PFL's work, and I really am glad that there are more legal experts out there like Jonathan who could help explain certain subjects more clearly than I could simply just by reading off of certain legal briefs. But you're going to like what Jonathan has to say about free market environmentalism, updates to ESA cases specifically with the grizzly bear ruling that just came out from the Ninth Circuit and many other topics, especially the EAJA, which is a very contentious but important issue to learn about and to learn how preservationist interests hijack that law and stay relevant that way rather than submitting their ideas to the court of public opinion. Here is my interview with Jonathan. Jonathan, thank you so much for joining District of Conservation. Thank you for having me. Could you describe more about your role at Pacific Legal Foundation and what you do as a lawyer litigating on conservation and free market environmental issues? I'd be happy to. Uh, I'm a senior attorney at Pacific Legal Foundation. I've been there for about eight years. 
PLF is the nation's oldest nonprofit law firm dedicated to defending property rights uh, and other constitutional rights. And we have a pretty impressive track record at the Supreme Court, including a spate of recent unanimous decisions uh, protecting uh, individual rights and property rights. Uh, my work mostly concerns Endangered Species Act issues and Clean Water Act issues. And the reason why a property rights organization like ours uh, is involved in, in so many environmental issues is because, at least in the United States, environmental issues tend to almost always implicate uh, property rights, both in good ways and bad ways. The good way is that property, property rights have historically been the primary means by which uh, we protect environmental values. Uh, the most famous example, of course, being Thomas Jefferson once purchased the Virginia's natural bridge with the explicit purpose of conserving it and protecting it, recognizing that property rights enable him to do that. Um, and often those rights are threatened in ways that can also harm the environment today. The other way that property rights get implicated is, of course, more negative. A lot of modern environmental regulations uh, impose really extensive burdens on property owners in ways that threaten their rights and, and, and undermine uh, the value of property. And in, in our experience, this often ends up being bad for both property owners and uh, the environment. Because if you make, say, endangered species or wetlands a significant liability for property owners, they're going to respond to those incentives uh, and, and give you less of them. Uh, in addition to PLF, I'm also a research fellow at the Property Environment Research Center, which studies from the policy side how free market environmentalism can overcome some of these conflicts uh, by creating better incentives, using property rights to encourage people to perform voluntary conservation and conserve the environmental assets that we all hold so dear. It's a very good explainer because I think we're seeing, and maybe this is my observation, having followed the issue for about five or so years and just kind of seeing the difference between uh, the previous administration and this current one, I have noticed, and I feel like a lot of people, different stakeholders, including private property rights owners, states and localities, feel like they're having their voices heard. Is that something you feel is the case, even uh, with the legal cases that some have to encounter? I think so, and I, I certainly hope so. I'm admittedly a biased uh, observer since I'm you know, believe so strongly in free market environmentalism as the solution. Uh, but throughout my career, I think I've seen that that shift is happening. Even people who are resistant or skeptical uh, that property rights and markets uh, have an important role in protecting the environment seem to be coming around. And that's in large part because the regulatory approaches that we've been trying for half a century simply haven't worked. Take the Endangered Species Act as an example, the area I've done the most work in recently, uh, for over 45 years, we've had this statute in place that imposes sorry, really burdensome restrictions on private property owners ostensibly to help us protect and recover endangered species. We've got all the burdens, but we haven't really got the benefits. Fortunately, few species go extinct, but only about 2% of listed species have recovered. Uh, property rights and, and markets give us a way to do better than that by, again, focusing on incentives. The way the ESA currently works is we make the presence of a species or its habitat a huge liability for property owners, which they respond to. And, and there's really strong evidence that landowners will avoid restoring habitat or may preemptively destroy it because 
if a species comes in, that means there goes their retirement or there goes their ability to send their kids to college, the really dear costs. Whereas if we reward landowners who conserve habitat, restore habitat, we're going to get much better results. And I think that's something that's being seen, not just by people like me who you know, are inclined to, to endorse free market uh, approaches, but may have been skeptical until they saw the results of the heavy-handed regulation. Yeah, I think that view is starting to be more broadly welcomed. And like you, I do have a bias and I am involved in it, but I try to pay attention to what the preservationists put out there as well. And it seems like they're certainly more organized. They have a lot more interest groups. They have millions of dollars. They have the legal support and backing. But I think there is a counterbalance with organizations like the ones you're affiliated with, some of the ones I work with, and I think even um, just greater interest on an individual basis, because people are, I guess, are individually impacted by, let's say, what the EPA has done in the past, what the Department of Interior, BLM has done. And you just see those agencies now, in my view, I think, probably streamlining and making themselves more communicable to different interests. I think woes are being lessened between uh, individuals and agencies. I mean, obviously the relationships are not perfect, but I think stakeholders feel a lot more comfortable and feel that their voices are being heard after they have felt they've been long shut out from conversations. I think that's exactly right. And that's happening both within the environmental conservationist community and as you said, in federal agencies. And one of the reasons for optimism that I see is that uh, the way the Endangered Species Act, for instance, has been is implemented began to change really during the Obama administration. There was a concerted effort to try to recover species without relying on uh, the usual command and control burdensome regulations. And that has been expanded and formalized under the Trump administration. As, I'm, as I know you know, uh, the Fish and Wildlife Service issued regulations last summer and, and one of those rules sort of codifies this approach of trying to recover species to the point that you don't need to rely on uh, burdensome regulations, but also considering how to recover them without relying on them in the first place so that there could be a process for listing a species as, say, threatened, um, which is different than, of course, being endangered and on the precipice of extinction, um, and, set, and having an open mind of, well, what's the way to recover species? Historically, we regulate all listed species exactly the same way, with I think pretty significant negative outcomes. Uh, and the new rules encourage more creativity, more collaboration, bringing conservationists, landowner states to the table. And I think that holds a lot of promise for having some of those negotiations and, and getting a lot of innovation. Absolutely. Do you, which groups would you say are the most resistant to doing that? Is it the typical groups like Sierra Club, Defenders of Wildlife? I feel like anytime I've watched hearings, and I remember watching your uh, participation in the grizzly bear hearing, and it seemed like a lot of the opponents were still pretty resistant to this kind of thinking. They really like to have a clamp down and kind of a monopoly on these issues, and they don't want any room for uh, public debate or dialogue. Is that still a problem that you encounter? or you feel like the broader conservation movement encounters still? I think that's definitely right. The conservation environmental community is a big tent and there's a ton of diversity of views uh, within it. But particularly on the political level, uh, a minority gets an outsized amount of attention and holds a lot of influence. I think part of the reason for this is that if you're say a TV or newspaper reporter, if you wanna to go to someone 
for a quote, you're going to pick the person who's going to give you the most extreme and, 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 and noteworthy quote. And so the dynamics are such that there are a couple of groups, and, and we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of this later, but they essentially have really strong incentives to focus on a litigation, a political approach uh, to curbing, conserving species to the, to the, and rejecting other more voluntary or collaborative approaches. But I do think it's important to stress that that's, I think, a minority position. The largest conservation groups in the country generally don't take that approach. I'm, I'm thinking of like the Nature Conservancy and to some extent the Environmental Defense Fund. Uh, those groups largely avoid the litigation and the conflict in favor of either using property rights to directly pursue their environmental goals or collaborating with states and landowners to do it through more voluntary means. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I have heard that, and maybe as groups perhaps take a more decentralized approach, um, I've noticed in different organizations, which uh, sometimes do have some preservationist overtones, if you talk to individual chapters, they may not necessarily agree with everything that the national organization does and vice versa. Maybe nationally, the group is good and then some of the chapters deviate a little bit. But I think um, as certain groups are oriented to be more decentralized, you could see, I think, uh, more deviation, I think, uh, if they're more inclined to preservationist stuff. Sometimes you can collaborate. I've heard in different states, like in Florida and whatnot, they've actually worked with groups who nationally would not work with them, but locally uh, they have found some I guess, common interests and common agreement over certain issues. So uh, yeah, that, that's interesting that you note that. Yeah, it's sort of a microcosm of the case for why a lot of environmental issues should be resolved locally or in the state level, uh, sort of like federalism for environmental groups. Absolutely. The people who are closest to a lot of these issues who have to see their neighbors every day and sort of answer for some of the costs and other burdens being imposed are a lot more willing to have reasonable conversations. It's only at the sort of national political level where we don't really see the human impact or even sometimes the environmental impact of a lot of these uh, approaches that you have these very stilted, very extreme one side versus the other conversations. Indeed. Could you talk about some recent court cases you have worked on and advocated on behalf of through PFL? Uh, specifically, could you talk briefly about the dusky gopher frog and what uh, your thoughts are on the recent grizzly bear ruling out of the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals? Sure. So the dusky gopher frog case is probably PLF's most significant Endangered Species Act uh, win in recent years. There we represented landowners who had their property designated as critical habitat for the dusky gopher frog. Even though the frog didn't live on their property, hadn't been seen in the area for over 50 years and actually couldn't even live there. The Fish and Wildlife Service admitted that the area was currently unsuitable as habitat and you, you couldn't reintroduce frogs there without pretty extensive restoration efforts. Uh, the case we brought and what we argued to the Supreme Court was that only habitat could be designated as critical habitat, that the ESA wasn't this open invitation for federal agencies to impose burdens on landowners willy-nilly, that there had to be some reasoned explanation how land was habitat. But I think what the case also demonstrates is the incentive problem uh, behind the ESA. I mean, assuming, basically the government's theory for how this was going to benefit the, the dusky gopher frog was that by imposing regulations, which the agency admitted could cost landowners as much as $30 million in value, 
uh, for their property, that those landowners would be so grateful they would then go and voluntarily restore habitat <laughs> and do the really difficult work to reintroduce uh, gopher frogs. And no one that you tell that theory to thinks it's remotely reasonable. No one thinks that would actually happen. Um, and, and it just highlights why the command and control regulatory approach doesn't work. We're not rewarding people for restoring habitat, doing the the important things that are needed to do, be done to recover species. But we're certainly punishing people if their land could be part of that recovery. And then you, you mentioned the other case, which is the... the uh, Yellowstone grizzly bear case, the Ninth Circuit decided a few weeks ago, their PLF, as well as PERC, filed an amicus brief um, arguing that the Ninth Circuit needed to provide some logic and clear some of the mess of litigation over the Endangered Species Act. At issue there was the Yellowstone grizzly, which is one of the most impressive recoveries to happen under the ESA. I mentioned earlier, there aren't many of them. Only about 2% of species have recovered, but the grizzly is one of the few exceptions. And for over 15 years, um, the, the federal government has been trying to celebrate that recovery by delisting the species. That effort has spanned the Bush administration, Obama administration, and Trump administration. And at every point, special interest groups have used the courts to block the delisting. So our amicus brief argued that this was a bad outcome, not only for property owners who continue to bear really significant burdens, because of the regulation, but also bad for the grizzly. Um, there, you know, there aren't many positive incentives in the ESA to recover a species. The real most important one is the prospect that if you recover a species, you succeed, you'll be rewarded at the end of the day by delisting the species. And litigation has created so many um, roadblocks to that process that it may no longer be a realistic outcome. So from the perspective of the landowner, why are you going to put your time and money into restoring habitat, trying to grow a population, if there's no reasonable roadmap for the delisting of the species and dealing with some of the other concerns? In the grizzly uh, case, as the population has grown, it's spread out beyond Yellowstone's boundaries and is now imposing pretty significant costs on ranchers and other landowners um, who, who are having to accommodate th this growing population. The, the Ninth Circuit's outcome doesn't really fix most of that, unfortunately. Uh, it held, upheld the lower court's decision to block the delisting, but there were some positive signs. The court does make clear that the agency can delist it. Uh, it just has to do a little bit more analysis. So I expect some point in the next few years that'll finally happen, but it took way too long, uh, and that has pretty serious consequences for the incentives to recover species. And do you anticipate uh, any next moves for it? Is it going to be allowed perhaps locally or are they still going to run into legal issues, you think? What, what's the um, future of, let's say, grizzly bear delisting in your mind? Does it go to the Supreme Court or is it just going to kind of stay where it is? I think the case is over. The government's position in that case was a little unusual. It didn't actually ask the Ninth Circuit to overturn uh, the lower court's opinion. So I, I doubt it'll appeal the case further. It was really just looking for guidance about what to do. Uh, but the Fish and Wildlife Service has already started another round of review of the, the grizzly populations. PERC filed comments uh, supporting that and explaining why this population is recovered and why delisting it is so important. With the Ninth Circuit's guidance in hand, I expect the outcome will be that 
this population has recovered and, and should be delisted. Presumably that too will be litigated and we'll have round three of litigation, litigation wars over the grizzly. Um, but I think one of the important changes is that the ESA reforms I mentioned that happened last summer give the agency a lot more flexibility this time. Um, previously, the only way to, to fix the situation, to return management authority to the states and deal with some of the negative consequences for landowners and communities was delisting. Uh, but now the agency might instead consider keeping the grizzly listed, but going ahead and, and getting rid of the regulation, transferring authority to manage the grizzly to the states. Um, and that might be a middle ground that probably not completely avoiding litigation, but maybe taking some of the wind out of the sails of, of the court cases while still reaching a reasonable outcome, recognizing that this population has increased tremendously uh, in recent years. And the next step in its recovery is to return authority to the states and start dealing with some of the consequences of the growing grizzly population. Interesting. Yeah, I, I'll do my best to keep tabs on that issue because I know it's very contentious. It pulls at the heartstrings. It, it garners a lot of emotion. But yeah, I would hope that um, some remedy to that situation can happen because human bear conflicts I've heard from people locally on the ground in that uh, tri-state area have started to increase and it's put a lot of burdens on game wardens and ranchers and cattlemen and other landowners uh, with, with that issue. And it's also harmful to the bear if people cannot help manage the species there. So hopefully some remedy will be found in that case. I wanted to ask you about the EAJA. I've had lots of listeners ask me to bring on someone with your expertise, a lawyer who deals specifically in this to explain what it is and kind of how it is abused, let's say, by serial litigants and what are the implications uh, through, mis through this misuse? Sure. The Equal Access to Justice Act is a statute that allows anyone suing a government agency that prevails uh, to have their attorney's fees paid for by the government. Uh, the logic behind it is pretty reasonable. The, the idea is that if you enforce the law against the government, you're helping to hold it accountable and you're really doing a public service that shouldn't end up costing you a lot of money or possibly bankrupting you. Um, a lot of the, the cases under the EAJA are sort of non-controversial social security cases and other uh, cases where ordinary people are just trying to, to get relief from agencies. Um, and, and there are many other statutes like that that take the basic approach of if your litigation is really vindicating public interest, um, you shouldn't have to bear a lot of cost for it. The most famous example being a uh, provision known as Section 1983, which allows you to get attorney's fees when you challenge state and state officials' violations of the federal constitution. Um, but the problem with the EAJA is that as the amount of litigation, in, in particularly environmental litigation, has expanded, a lot of people are questioning whether it's really in the public interest anymore. Um, most of the cases aren't really vindicating major violations of federal law. They're technicality-based uh, cases brought because some special interest group is opposed to something. And this is a way to use the technicality to not only stop the thing they don't like, but also get pretty significant fees from the government. Um, and and in, in reality, that the way that payment system works, they often profit from doing it. And the reason for that is the EAJA pays attorneys or pays people that sue the government uh, up to $125 an hour for their attorneys. 
And many nonprofit groups pay their own in-house attorneys a lot less. So, you, uh, you know, a group might bring a case and pay $50,000 to litigate it, but then the government gives them $150,000. Um, and so there's a huge opportunity there and a huge incentive there uh, for environmental and other groups to focus on litigation as the exclusive or primary means of pursuing their goals, where other approaches like collaboration, working with people um, might be more effective. Uh, and then the other concern, as I mentioned, is what's the public really getting out of the millions and tens of millions of dollars it's actually spending? The most famous example of how of this EAJA abuse is under the Endangered Species Act. The federal agencies are required to make decisions about petitions to list species in 90 days and a year. And while in theory that sounds reasonable, the reality is the agencies have never had the resources to actually meet that. And there's an incentive for groups that specialize in these petition and litigation um, a process to, to abuse the system in order to bring these cases. So one of the things that started happening a few decades ago is two or three groups, really, um, it, it was basically limited to them, started filing petitions to list hundreds of species at a time, knowing that there was absolutely no way uh, federal agents would be able to review that kind of complicated petition within the deadline set by the statute. Um, and then the agencies inevitably missed it. Groups brought lawsuits. They won because the statute on its face says you have to make these decisions by this time. And then they got paid handsomely for it. Um, during the Obama administration, there was a pushback on this practice and a, a new rule to try to limit it, to make petitions easier so that this the timeline could actually happen. Um, so maybe there's some hope that over time that that process will die down. But that's that's really the problem that we are paying uh, private groups a lot of money to bring a lot of cases. We don't really know how much we're spending because agencies don't keep track of the amount of money they pay under the EAJA. And it's not clear to a lot of folks uh, what the public's getting uh, for all of that money. We're certainly helping some special interest groups achieve their goals, but are those goals the same as what the public really wants? Yeah, it seems like there is a disconnect in terms of uh, are they only uh, maybe inflating their influence by doing this, filing these suits, making this money, therefore being more powerful and bringing these lawsuits on time and time again. But I think when they're forced to be on the battlefield of public opinion, they can't defend their views. And when the public realizes maybe their arguments really fall short of conservation, then they re reassess maybe whatever preconceived notions it is, but maybe they use it as a harbinger to hide away, <laughs> hide away, excuse me, from, from facing public opinion and having to submit their views to review and scrutiny. Um, like I would say the free market view of environmentalism gets. So yeah, it's interesting that they use and arguably abuse that uh, tool, but that'll be interesting to see if um, more reform potentially could come about with that. I wanted to um, also ask you to talk about what your thoughts are on how free market environmentalism has kind of evolved over the 40 years it's kind of been out there in terms of uh, public discourse and how it's largely shaped environmentalism away from this preservationist big government view to kind of a more balanced uh, ecosystem for differing views in environmentalism. And there's certainly resistance to allowing free market or limited government or federalist type approaches to environmentalism reign, but I think they are certainly more welcomed. Can you speak more to that and how that evolution has taken hold? Sure, I'm happy to. So this year is the 40th anniversary of the Property Environment Research Center 
uh, which has been one of the one of the key players in developing free market environmentalism ideas and putting them into action. And the basic logic behind it is much older, older than Perk. I mentioned earlier Thomas Jefferson's use of property rights to protect the environment. Uh, but really, the voluntary property market-based approach is the American ideal of conservation. Uh, lots of conservation groups like the Nature Conservancy uh, have long used property rights to advance their goals. Uh, hunters and other sportsmen have long used markets paying taxes on the products they consume in order to fund conservation that then benefits them by promoting healthy, sustainable wildlife populations. Um, you know, I really think the last 40, 50 years is the the exception, not the rule. The, the rule in, in American history has been that we solve our environmental value, our environmental conflicts together and through voluntary action through property rights and markets. And, and Perk, Perk's research has helped to show how that approach can continue to, to be effective today. Um, and over the 40 years, you've seen a really significant change. At first, it was an idea that was a very small minority people were really skeptical of. And so the, the beginning of PERC was really developing what the idea is and how it's supposed to work. And in recent, recent years, PERC has shifted to, well, let's put it in action. People now understand what free market, market environmentalism is and why it can produce a better result. And probably the latest example is a report that was actually just released yesterday uh, concerning elk migration out of Yellowstone and Paradise Valley. Sort mm -hmm. of like the grizzly bear that we were talking about earlier, as wildlife uh, migrates off of federal property onto private property, it imposes pretty significant costs on private landowners. And that's definitely true in the case of the elk, where uh, elk consume forage and impose other conflicts with landowners in the Paradise Valley. And, and Perk's report goes into what are the market mechanisms we can use to reward landowners who accommodate those elk so that hunters and other people who really value the elk can continue to get that benefit and see a healthy and growing elk population. And that's just one, probably the latest example of a, a broader trend. There are these opportunities out there for people who care about the environment to help put their money where their mouth is and provide the incentives that are needed uh, for landowners to protect wildlife populations, to restore wetlands, to restore habitat, uh, it's really just up to us to go out and seize those opportunities. Indeed, it really is. And I think more people are perhaps uh, awakening to that idea. Like it's it's not foolproof. It's it's kind of hard to, to, to fully encapsulate it or assess it. But anyone I've talked to uh, who, I guess, whether they agree with us in the center-right space and some people in the middle, and I've talked to even some center-left people, uh, that I think they are starting to be more open to it because that's a good way to kind of commune with different people who are conservation minded to find agreement, especially in areas that should bring people together, enjoyment of the outdoors. And yeah, it will be really good to see the idea continue to flourish. And I really do think there is an opportunity, but sometimes I worry that if certain uh, individuals get into office, that progress will slowly be chipped away at, I think, um, because certain people, especially in certain corners of the Democrat Party, have said, well, we have to move away from uh, using oil and gas royalties to fund land and water conservation fund. They want to kind of uh, strip the revenue source for which a lot of these conservation projects work. And that's a little troubling <laughs> uh, to me, but um, yeah, hopefully, hopefully they're like a minority and that more people across the political spectrum will come together 
uh, just to recognize that there could be balanced use uh, with different resources that different uh, consumptive users can recreate on public land. I don't know if you wanted to go into that at all, but some conflict I've seen is over um, how uh, public lands access is viewed. I think people don't have a fundamental understanding of the different distinctions. They think a national park is the same as a national monument, as same as BLM lands or forestry lands or fish and wildlife lands. So I think we have to do a little bit better of a job in explaining the different distinctions and also that actually there are different opportunities to recreate and to uh, create incentives for livelihoods, especially on the more uh, uh, I guess, accessible lands like fish and wildlife, forestry, BLM, where people can actually make a living off of recreating and, and working on the land as well. But you are absolutely right. Federal land law is super complicated and <laughs> almost all po uh, popular writing about it gets almost everything wrong. Uh, I, I'm glad you mentioned the distinction between national parks and national monuments, because that's one of the things that drives me crazy. Yes. Uh, you always see national monuments described as parks when they're not... Um, but, but you're also right that, you know, the reason why we have all these distinctions and these categories is that Congress has made a judgment that we want to use land, federal land differently, mm -hmm. that some national parks we might want to have really, really restricted, but other land uh, we might want to encourage outdoor recreation as well as, um, you know, sustainable use. Um, and so more understanding about that is important, but also more recognition that we don't have to resolve all those conflicts through the political process. And in fact, that's probably what's holding us back. You know, you mentioned the current conflicts over oil, oil drilling on, on federal land. Part of the reason why that's such a tense conflict is because we're assuming that politics has to solve it, where markets could probably do better. Um, right now, uh, conservationists can't bid against oil companies to block leasing on land that they care about, where they might say the environmental conservation values are even more important than whatever, whatever, whatever amount of income an oil company might uh, get out of the land. Uh, if we had open bidding, we allowed these values to actually, you know, work themselves out through the prices, we might find that some of these lands should be conserved, some of them should be used, um, and everyone would have an incentive to work that out voluntarily. We wouldn't have to have every single presidential election and every single congressional election be the decider of all of these conflicts, that they really can be worked out through property rights, through markets, and through voluntary cooperation. Right. And I think um, I want to clarify that I don't think uh, the libertarian or conservative view is to sell off every parcel of land to make everywhere drillable. <laughs> I don't I don't have that view. I do support when it's uh, feasible from a sustainable standpoint and also from an economic standpoint with the limited uh, environmental impact. I think those type of projects can still uh, take hold and uh, obviously create a different opportunities for different interests there. But no, I don't know anyone who believes you should sell off every single parcel of land and, and uh, subject every, every federal land to being drilled or explored or have a development project built about. Actually, I really love the show Yellowstone on Paramount. I don't know if you watch it because it, while it is a dramatized view of like these different stakeholder relations, it does talk about the different conflicts that arise from developers wanting to come into this uh, fictitious ranch in Montana or Native Americans' uh, interests kind of clashing with the landowners' interests or um, ESA problems clashing with the landowners' interests. So there's, there's yeah, I think um, people have to understand that there are different multiple uses for, for public land. And uh, I think those could be navigated. You're right, if people come together and try to solve it through voluntary or private means. They're more so rather than using the purse of government. 
Absolutely. As you know, Perk is based in Bozeman, Montana, the gateway to Yellowstone. Uh, so I, I hear all the time about uh, the show Yellowstone and how well it encapsulates. Obviously, it dra- dramatizes it, but, you know, sheds light on what really happens uh, in areas throughout the West where you have inherent conflicts between property owners, the federal government and, and environmental values. Um, and I think that's what makes the work of PLF Perk and so many of these other groups that are open to new ideas to solve environmental conflicts so important. Um, is that if we continue to rely on politics, we're just going to have conflict forever. There's a reason why 50 years after the Endangered Species Act, Clean Water Act, and all these other federal statutes were enacted, they remain very controversial and fraught with conflict. But if we can start to solve some of these issues through property rights and markets, they'll be solved for good and everyone will benefit. Absolutely. And innovation, too, I think also can help fix a lot of the issues. I know Perk has talked about it. Uh, different, You see different private companies developing these different mechanisms to clean spills, to uh, purify water, to get rid of or help control non-native or invasive species. So I think I would hope that the environmentalist landscape could look more like that, where people rely less on politics, like you said, and more so on innovation and voluntary action. That'd be really good to see. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jonathan, where could people find your work and connect with you? Uh, well, let me start by once again, thanking you for having me on. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, your work on Twitter and the podcast. Um, so I, I hope this conversation was entertaining and fun for the audience. Uh, if anyone wants to learn more about my work, uh, you can find out more about PLF and my litigation work through PacificLegal.org. Uh, and the you can find out more about PERC through PERC.org. Um, which is a re- both websites are really great resources for learning more about the role of property rights and, and markets in solving environmental conflicts. Uh, and they're being updated all the time with, with, with not only new cases in PLS, con- uh, PLS case, but uh, with new ideas about on the ground conservation work that property rights and markets can contribute to in the case of PERC. Wonderful. I will be sure to link everything that I can in the show notes. I'll include links to your social media accounts so people can connect with you directly to follow your musings. This has been really wonderful. I think a lot of people are going to take away from this a little more confidence about how the future of environmentalism works and uh, what they can do to get involved. So thank you again, Jonathan, for coming on. And uh, this is our second attempt to record this, having an actually better executed interview this time and uh, sharing your thoughts with me and for my listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I want to thank Jonathan for coming on the podcast to share what he's been working on and hope you guys enjoyed that brief explanation as to what is happening on the legal front with respect to environmentalism and conservation. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to never miss a beat or a guest announcement. We're also on about 18 different podcasting platforms, namely Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and iHeartRadio. You can find the links to where we're played, but I encourage you, if you are an Apple listener, to subscribe, listen to some past episodes, download this episode, encourage your friends to download this episode, and leave us a review if you feel inclined. I will be posting two more episodes this week, one tomorrow with a few other updates I wanted to cover but missed, and a update on the Great American Outdoors Act, which is expected to be voted on on the 22nd of this week. So you will hear that from me. And also, 
I want to make sure you guys are aware of this, but the podcast will start to be powered by CFACT, who I work with for my Conservation Nation series. And there's going to be no changes to the podcast or the format, but I'm really honored that they have decided to come on. But going forward, for the foreseeable future, at least, the podcast will be sponsored and powered by CFACT. Thank you for listening. Take care and make sure to encourage your friends to find us and check us out and give us their consideration.